Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the London School of Economics and to this penultimate um, event for the LSE Festival, uh, which is called Us and Them, Populism and Religious Identity in the West. My name is James Walters. I'm director of the LSE Faith Centre. And we host the LSE Religion and Global Society blog, which is run by my excellent colleague Daniel Coyne, who's organized this event. Uh, and that blog has hosted uh, a very successful series over the last term uh, on religion and populism, out of which this uh, event has come. And what we explored in that series was that we seem to be uh, living with a bit of a paradox, particularly in Western Europe. On the one hand, religious affiliation continues to decrease, uh, but simultaneously we're realizing that religion is one of the non-rational drivers in politics that we've overlooked for some time and that uh, new so-called populist politicians are tapping into. So we've got fears uh, in the West about Islamization that's couched in increasing, uh, increasingly Christian rhetoric. So that's what we're hoping to shed some light on uh, this afternoon. We're very sad uh, to have learned that Anne Applebaum was taken ill this morning, so we wish her well uh, and a speedy recovery, but we're delighted to have our two distinguished contributors. Tobias Kramer is completing a PhD at Cambridge University on religion uh, and the new wave of right-wing populism, and it was actually his uh, cover story in The New Statesman that prompted us to start thinking about this issue. And Zubeda Hack is Deputy Director of the Runnymede Trust, a leading race equality think tank. So Tobias and Zubeda are going to make their initial presentations, and then we'll have a little uh, discussion uh, between ourselves before uh, coming over to you, and we hope to hear from as many uh, people as we can fit in this afternoon here. If you're on Twitter, do use it, and um, I think the hashtag is up there somewhere. Um, there we go. Hashtag LSE Festival, hashtag New World Disorders. So um, we're going to start with Tobias. Over to you. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for the kind introduction. As you can see from the program, as you just heard, my research focuses on the relationship between religion and in particular Christianity and the rise of right-wing populism in Western democracies. But really, before going into the depth of that, let me actually start out by taking you onto a little imaginary journey through a couple of Western cities in these last few years. And let's start in my own, own home country in Germany, in particular in Dresden. Just imagine yourself walking through these beautiful baroque streets and suddenly coming across a huge crowd of people, several thousand of them gathered around the Frauenkirche, the main Protestant church, and they are carrying candles, they are singing church hymns, and some of them are carrying oversized crosses. And I imagine that the second stop of our journey is Paris, where we come across another crowd of people, several thousand, this time gathered around the statue of a Catholic saint, in preparing to march through the streets of Paris in that saint's veneration. And then the third crowd, the third stop of our journey is another crowd, this time in Florida and the United States, um, and they are beginning their, their meeting by reciting the Lord's Prayer and singing, God bless the USA. Now what is interesting about these three events, all of which took place in the last couple of years, was that none of them took place in the context of a religious service, procession, 
or any other kind of religious gathering, but that they were all organized by right-wing populist movements, the first by Pegida, Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the West in Dresden, the second by the Front National, which is now the Rassemblement National in Paris in the veneration of Joan of Arc, and the third one was a Trump rally in Florida earlier last year. And these three events are actually representative of two broader trends, as Jim mentioned, that are currently taking place, uh, that we can currently observe in Western societies. On the one hand, of course, the rise of right-wing populism, and on the other hand, the resurgence of, uh, of references to religion in our otherwise increasingly secular societies. And given the nature of these three events that we see here, one might now be very much tempted to think that they are really part of one and the same backlash of the, uh, of the, of the reactionary forces of religion and right-wing populism against the advance of liberal um, secular society. But when we look a bit closer, we actually, actually see that reality is a bit more complex than that. So we see, for instance, that Trump was, yes, incredibly popular amongst white evangelicals in 2016. He's got about 82%. But the same white evangelicals, when asked in surveys, also said that they perceived him to be the least religious GOP candidate in recent history. Um, and when we look at, uh, at Europe, we actually see that supporters of right-wing populism tend to be disproportionately irreligious. So if we take the example of, of Dresden here, there was actually a survey taken on that very evening where this picture was taken. And it turned out that of these people run around with these like, huge crosses singing church hymns, over 80% self-identified as irreligious or atheist in a country that's still 60% Christian otherwise. Um, and you can actually see that throughout Europe, things like church attendance turn out to be one of the strongest predictors for not voting right-wing populists. So how are we then to, to understand these paradoxical relationships? And what I'm basically trying to do is to look at it in four steps. The first one is to try and understand what is happening at the moment, like what are the social origins of right-wing populism? Why is that happening at the moment? And I can go into greater depth later, but very much in, in sum, it's that this search of right-wing populism seems to, to an extent the result of a new cleavage, of a new social divide that is appearing in Western societies that is very much uh, focused on the, on the question of uh, cultural and national identity. So in addition to the two traditional cleavages that define politics in most Western countries, that is on the one hand the economic cleavage uh, between um, workers and capitalists, the class struggle, if you like to call it that way, and then on the other hand, the, the cultural or religious cleavage between um, social conservatives and social liberals, basically about things like um, sexual morality or the place of the church, we increasingly have a third cleavage that is cutting through that, that is overshadowing these things, and that is really primarily concerned with things like uh, how to define national and uh, national identity and national culture, how to define the us and the other. And this is very often focalized through the question of uh, immigration. Um, and you have a lot of people talking about that at the moment. So, for instance, David Guttard called this the divide between the somewheres and the, the anywheres. Others speak about closed society versus open society, uh, globalism versus nativism, <coughs> cosmopolitanism versus communitarianism. But what all of these names have in common is that they show that these, uh, this new divide seems very 
is represented by the current political party system because it seems to really cut through both the left and the right. And by making now uh, national identity and immigration the centerpiece of their agenda, right-wing populists uh, seem to try to tap into this new market niche um, with their own form of a new right-wing populist identity politics. And that brings us to the second point, that is how does religion now fit into this? And here it's really interesting that so far my research does strongly suggest that they um, try to appropriate religion primarily as a cultural identity marker uh, in the context of this new identity uh, politics, but they often remain rather distant from Christian values uh, and beliefs and institutions. Um, and to try to better understand that, try to think of a right-wing populist worldview basically as a triangular relationship between, on the one hand, the pure, the homogeneous people, that's the us, and then you have a set of two others, the one is the internal other, that's the corrupted liberal elite. And then you have an external other. Um, and that external other used to be very much defined in ethnic terms. Um, but what is happening at the moment, uh, and we will hear about that in more detail in, in a second from uh, Svaida, but um, what is happening is that this external other is increasingly defined in religious terms, and in particular as the Muslim or as Islam, and it is really only because of this negative definition of the other that Christianity may now appear as an analogous identifier of the us. But what this really is, is not necessarily a return of religiosity to secular society, but really a culturalization of religion, or even a secularization uh, of religion, because religion here, or religion here is really, um, the aspect of belonging is increasingly dissociated from the aspect of believing. is taking apart religion as a cultural identifier from religion as a personal uh, faith. And you can see that to an extent with right-wing populist policies because a lot of right-wing populist parties actually marry religious symbols and language with predominantly secular policies. And if you think of it in these ways, it actually starts making sense to have the Front National uh, venerating a Catholic saint, Joan of Arc, in spite of their very strongly anti-clerical positions on things like, like secularism and laicite, it makes sense to have secular Pegida running around with huge crosses in the German national colors. And it even makes sense to have a twice-divorced, thrice-married, formerly pro-choice businessman with relatively little exhibited biblical knowledge but several alleged <laughs> extramarital affairs to become the savior of Christian America if Christian America is really defined in cultural and identitarian terms, much rather than in terms of Christian virtues or values. And what is interesting now, and that's the third point, is that this strategy employed by many right-wing populists is actually most successful amongst irreligious voters, increasingly secular voters, uh, and amongst non-practicing, so to speak, cultural Christians who identify with Christianity but don't practice their faith, whereas practicing Christians um, empirically remain comparatively immune to such attempts. So in the literature, people talk about the religion gap or the vaccination effect of uh, religious practice against voting right-wing populism. And I gave you here a couple of numbers from my German case study where you can actually see that the AFD on average does almost double as well amongst irreligious voters 
as amongst um, Protestants and Catholics in Germany. And the same is true through large parts of Europe and France or Italy, for example. And we can see, and, and to be sure, the situation in the US is different because Trump did so incredibly well amongst white evangelicals. But if you look a bit closer, he actually did best amongst those white evangelicals who don't go to church, whereas he slightly underperformed amongst the most frequent churchgoers. Um, and what is now finally, what does this mean for the role of religion and in particular the church in society? And I will end on that. Um, but what seems to be uh, the fact is that the size and importance of this immunization effect of religion against voting right-wing populist is to an extent depending on the public position of the church itself, of the public policy towards this um, cooptation attempts by the, by the far right. And here in particular, the comparison between the German and the American case is quite instructive uh, because you can see um, that in Germany, the church really came out extremely strongly against right-wing populism. They're probably, they, they, they called it hate speech. They excluded right-wing populists, AFD populists and Pegida populists from some of their, um, some, of, some church positions uh, and even uh, church events. Um, and it seems that they have been successful in that. They have created something of a social taboo for German Christians to vote right-wing populist, where, uh, and even pushed um, the AFD to partly abandon that strategy. So we have, for example, here Alexander Gauland, who is the leader of the AFD, and who, after this very fierce uh, conflict with the church, actually said, well, in that case, if this is what you understand under Christianity, we are not a Christian party. Uh, which is, was quite, a, quite a, uh, a, a break with former um, positions. In comparison, in the U.S., the churches, where the churches have been much more ambiguous, this immunization effect seems much, much weaker. So after a certain, certainly with a, a certain level of tooth grinding, the white evangelical clergy uh, has very much kept silence or even supports Trump. But in any case, it's much more ambiguous. And as a result, the, the Scott gap is very, very much more limited uh, very, really to the, only the, the most, uh, most practice, practicing evangelicals. Um, I mean, I won't get into conclusions yet, but just a couple of questions we can also debate later is basically one question is whether the emergence of right-wing populism really is just a threat or potentially also corrective to an old party system which does not seem to present all the political cleavages anymore. The second one is, is religion a fuel to this new rise of right-wing populism or might it also work as a barrier? And what does this mean for the future of faith and society? Are we seeing here sacralization of the secular return of religion to the public sphere? or rather secularization of the sacred. As I said, like, the PhD is not done, so I don't know the answers yet, uh, but not as the Donald. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. I don't think I can stand behind the podium because you won't be able to see me. Hello, everybody. I am really, really impressed that there are so many of you here on a Saturday because I was just saying that if I wasn't here on a Saturday, I'd be in front of the telly. So thank you for coming. Um, it's quite intimidating to go after Tobias, isn't it, with, with that much. I, I, I vaguely recall that when you're in the middle of your PhD, you have so much knowledge. But... Um, <laughs> It dissipates. It dissipates as you go along, and it's partly because I, um, just a little bit, just a step back from this topic. I'm 
the deputy director of the think tank. I don't know if, if have any of you heard of Run and Me Trust here? Hands up. Anybody heard of Ah, marvellous. I don't mean have you seen it on the leaflet, that doesn't count. Um, but yes, we are, we are a race equality think tank and what that means is um, we look at any issue in relation to any ethnic minority group, visible or non-visible, um, in the context of public services and how government policies affect them, which is why I'm here. Um, Let's see, how do I explain this? When I was approached to talk about this, um, and it was uh, presented to me as, as them and us, the way, the way I defined this talk is, and, and I've written about this a little, is how have the right-wing populists, how have they managed to get so much support for a group that's essentially fundamental libertarians fruitcakes and closet racists. And I think we need to think about it that way because one of the things that I find really interesting that's been happening in the last couple of years is the far right have been incredibly successful. The far right, the alt-right, call them what you will, or the right-wing populists. But they've been incredibly successful at shifting the narrative of racism of shifting the narrative of anti-Muslim racism versus Christianity, that civilizational threat, that pseudo-civilizational threat. They've been so successful that it's actually entered the mainstream. It's entered politics and it's entered the media. And that is essentially what I end up having to deal with. I'm at the other end of the spectrum where on a day-to-day -day basis, I have to deal with that. On a day-to-day -day basis, I will either go on to Newsnight and debate with a professor about do we, is white self-interest really a self-interest? Um, or I will be called to BBC and have to talk about actually are Asian, Asian sex groomers really a fundamental Muslim problem? Do we have a fundamental integration problem? And that's why that I think they've been incredibly successful because what the far-right populists have done is exactly that. They have presented Muslims as not only, as Tobias has said, as the other, as the enemy, but they've also presented them as the integration problem. In 2016, Louise Casey, who was, I don't know if you know Louise Casey, but she was the government czar. She was the government czar on integration. She wrote a much-awaited report on integration. In the integration report for this country, which is supposed to be about integration across all spectrums, and is supposed to be about integration of all groups, she mentioned Muslim, Muslims 249 times in one report, compared to the Polish group, now, the Polish group has been one of the fastest growing groups in this country since 2004. She mentioned them just 16 times, no, actually 14 times. So you can see how that narrative has also entered the mainstream. When you have Sajid Javid talking about Shamima Begum as the enemy, so to speak, he's not just talking about terrorism, he's also talking about the Muslim problem. When you have Labour politicians 
talking about the Rotherham sex groomers, they're not just talking about Pakistani men, they're talking about Muslim men. How do we know this? Well, because as I said, at Runnymede, we're at the other end, we're at the brunt end of it, where we have to deal with it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think the far right um, have been so successful with this strategy. Um, I think, and some of it overlaps with what Tobias was saying, which is they've been incredibly, incredibly adept at building a narrative around good versus bad. They've been incredibly adept at hijacking Christianity. And I think Tobias is absolutely right, because it is an incredible grim irony that they've hijacked Christianity, but not for the values of Christianity. They've hijacked it for its whiteness. That's, that's the main thing that we have to think about. When we think about evangelical Christians, we don't think about necessarily black Christians. We think about white Christians. So they've been incredibly bright at doing that, or adept, and I'm not necessarily sure I'd call them bright. They've been incredibly, incredibly clever at focusing on cultural loss rather than economic loss. But of course, we have to think about how did we run up to, how did we get to Brexit? How did we get to far-right support across Europe and in the States? And that's, of course, not necessarily to do with cultural loss. I'm not saying that there is no cultural loss. I do think governments, both Labour and the Conservatives in this country, have badly managed integration. And that has meant that people have felt challenged when new groups have come in, and that hasn't been managed. But actually... The real reality is around economic loss. The real reality is around people losing jobs, people, people losing jobs, people struggling with housing, austerity cuts hitting um, the lower socioeconomic groups hardly, and it, hard, hardly, hitting the lower socioeconomic groups harshly. And I think that's the other thing. The left behind has been painted as the white left behind. But actually, the austerity cuts have hit black and ethnic minority groups the hardest. But once again, that narrative has been reframed, has been repositioned as it's hit white groups. So they've been incredibly adept at taking that whole globalization argument, all of that, shifting that to the side and saying, actually, the real threat is cultural loss. And the great thing about talking about cultural loss is you can't really measure it. You know, you can measure immigration change, you can measure loss of jobs, you can measure housing issues, you can measure crime, but you can't measure cultural loss. That's why David Goodhart loves this subject. Because you can talk in vagueness till the cows come home and you never have to prove anything. Because if you say something that sort of makes sense, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I do feel a bit iffy about loads of Muslims moving on the streets. But, you know, they can't really measure it. They can't really articulate it. It, it has resonance. So that's why it's been particularly successful. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about... I've talked a little bit about the integration problem, but um, also about how the far right have, with Muslims, how they've made them the enemy. And it's been really interesting watching how they've made them the enemy, because one of the, one of the most 
um, strategic things they've done, which is extraordinary, and where the mainstream and the media have bought in, is they've separated Muslims from the religion. They've said, actually, our critique, our critique is never against Muslims, our critique is against a set of beliefs. That's one thing they've done. The other thing they've done is that then with Muslims, they've separated them from a race. So whereas, for instance, the Jewish group and the Sikh groups are seen as a race, and therefore when they claim that there's discrimination against them, it's accepted, Muslims are not seen that way. Muslims are not seen as a race or indeed as a religion. Islam is not even seen as a religion. Islam is seen as a political ideology, as an extremist ideology. Um, and that's despite the fact that in this country we have approximately 3 million Muslims. 5% uh, of the population are Muslims. That's despite the fact that around 6% are white groups, white Muslims. All of that has been blurred. So what the far right have done is they've taken a group that's enormously diverse, enormously diverse in its practicing, you know, from people that don't practice at all to people that practice. They've taken that group and they've homogenized it and they've pathologized it. And more than anything else, they've taken out all the ordinariness of that group. You no longer see Muslims as your neighbor. You no longer see them. You see them as the threatening other. The other thing they've done is when you think about... So, sorry, I'm going to step back a bit. Don't know if you know, but two years ago, we wrote a report. Runnymede Trust wrote a report. I'm sorry, am I going over my ten minutes? Uh, oh, Harry. Another minute. Runnymede Trust wrote a report two years ago on Islamophobia. Actually, we were one of the main organisations that coined the term Islamophobia in 1997. But we wrote another one two years ago, 20 years later, if you like, from the first one, because we thought Islamophobia has changed so much. It, you know, we used to consider it as just anti-Muslim hatred, but we thought two years ago, no, actually, it's changed so much, starting with the far right, then the alt-right, then the, you know, the Bannons, but now it's it seeped into mainstream media and, and politics. It's changed so much that we now need to define Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism. It's something the far right absolutely, and the right-wing populists absolutely reject. They do not see it as racism because they don't, want, they don't want you to see it as racism. But it's exactly the same. When you think about racism, in the 70s, the 60s, and why are we talking about 70s? The 60s, when race relations um, legislation first started, this was racism. Racism was about taking black people and presenting them as sexually deviant. Racism was associating black and ethnic minorities with crime. Um, and in the 80s, of course, when you thought about muggers, you thought of black people. And all that's changed is it's just a different group now. It's Muslims. So now Muslims, and, and that's regardless of their color, but you can assume that they are a racialized group. Muslims are seen as the sexually deviant group. Muslims are seen as the criminal group. Muslims are seen as those with ideas that are not the same as ours. And that's despite the fact that, of course, when you think about sex offenders, 
The most prevalent sex offenders are in white communities. We know that. We know that even with we know that even with pedophiles. That and, and that makes sense. It's majority white in this country, and we know that there is no single ethnic group or community in this country that doesn't have sex offenders. But when you think about sex offenders, when you think about grooming now, because of how the media has worked, because of how mainstream right-wing populism has become, people think about the Rotherham, the Pakistani groomers. So I think we need to just think a bit about that. I will I'll wrap up now. I'm sorry, I've definitely gone over. Um, this is what happens when, like I said, you're not focusing on your PhD. Um, I think... Um, the other thing I want to say is, is a little bit about how um, we, we've talked about how, how the right-wing populists have been really successful at focusing on cultural loss rather than economic loss, rather than austerity and so on. But as, as well as that, we need to think about how... Let's take Boris, our beloved Boris, Boris Johnson, and how... And, and now I think Sajid Javid, how they have taken Muslim groups and once again presented them as the other, how the issue suddenly becomes the burqa, which is extraordinary. You know, I, I find myself in interviews, whether on TV or on radio, literally saying, how does banning the burqa solve the issues of globalization? How does banning the burqa, how does that how is that a parallel to women wearing bikinis? If we accept that women can wear bikinis, why can't women wear burqas? Why is the women's body and what she wears even up for discussion? But you can see that it is up for discussion, that those analogies about a woman's right to choose and a woman's agency goes out the window when it comes to Muslim women. So that's the sort of stuff that we're dealing with. Um, I'm going to leave it there, even though there's quite a lot of other things, but I just wanted to throw that out there for you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both so much for that um, fantastic input. And where, where I think I, I want to begin um, is just with this title that we've got, Us and Them. I think there's, um, you know, there's a danger. I feel like I'm going to a lot of meetings at the moment where... The us is uh, we, the sort of liberal, enlightened uh, people, uh, and then the ignorant uh, populist idiots. Um, and I think both of you touched on this, but you know, it seems to me worth thinking about what, what is going on that, that we need to attend to, that we need to listen to, that's coming from these voices. Uh, and then practically, what, what and um, Zubedi, you're talking about badly managed integration, for, mm. for, for example. Um, and and what, what needs to be done to bridge this divide, this new axis that you, that you drew on that graph? I mean, I can <clears throat> say a little bit about that, because I, I do think that is actually the issue. So when I, I was saying that uh, right-wing populists have this binary worldview, that's not just right-wing populists. <laughs> uh, actually, we see that more and more also on the other side of the liberal elite um, and, and perceiving the right-wing populist basically as our other to an extent. So, but what we are really seeing there is that there is a really growing uh, divide in our society 
that is also, I mean, like, I think right-wing populists use that divide, but the divide itself is actually a social problem that needs to be tackled, because that divide is, they're not all racist or Islamophobic, etc. It's channeled in that way. But I do actually think that in many Western societies, we really have a serious problem between, on the one hand, um, a cosmopolitan ideology to an extent that has, that has become the mainstream, and also for very, many very good reasons, but that is very much based on identities as individual identities. It's very success-based. It's like um, the, the, the only legitimate identities are the, the ones you achieved yourself, which is fair enough. But then there is actually a large part of the population that says, like, hold on, there are also a couple of group identities that are important to many, many people. Um, but with these uh, group identities have very much uh, dissolved and eroded over the last couple of decades. So these are things like, like religion, which went down, like uh, class identity, which went down, um, like even regional identity, which, which has dissolved to a certain extent, and very often for good reasons. And these are not necessarily uh, negative developments, but they have a negative uh, side effect that for many people, especially those who are not uh, the chosen ones going to the LSE and having, being able to, to secure uh, university, <laughs> university places uh, at, at fantastic universities, but who, who really are not quite that successful and for whom shared and community uh, identities are all the more important, um, if these identities are considered as not legitimate, there is a real problem. And the problem is that this divide has not really been represented by, um, by most political parties throughout the West. So if we, if we look, um, especially, it's, it's a bit changing now, but if we look 10 years ago, we had a very much cosmopolitan left that has really left the, the old communitarian instincts of the working class behind and said, well, we are now new labor, uh, or like in, in Germany, the third way uh, of Gerhard Schröder, but it's really uh, all about individualism that has dropped the, the, the traditional communitarian instincts for um, what um, Thomas Frank called the liberalism of the rich, which is focusing on um, also important issues, but much more on things like identity politics um, or, or, or education, etc. Also important, but like this traditional instinct uh, has gone. And the same is true on the right, where you had figures such as um, George Osborne or Angela Merkel who have very much dropped the traditional emphasis on patriotism or uh, common national identity for a more cosmopolitan idea of liberal conservatism. Um, again, I'm not saying this is like a positive or negative development, but there is clearly a lack of representation. So, and so uh, that needs to be represented whether we really have to have right-wing populists to do that is up to debate, but I do think that there is a legitimate demand for representation. Um, in, in parts of our societies. As a beta, I'm sensing you don't entirely agree. <laughs> I, I do, I do. Um, I, I, but I, I think, I think this, as a think tank, we hear this all the time, that the reason the far right, the reason right-wing populists have been as successful as they have is because everyone else has ignored legitimate concerns. And here we find ourselves where we're thinking, well, at the moment they're saying that anti-Muslim hatred, anti-Muslim prejudice is, is a legitimate concern. At the moment they're saying that white self-interests is a legitimate interest. And so there's a fine line. On the one hand, I think Tobias is absolutely right, um, and I blame this firmly, firmly at the door of 
the political elites. I do think when you look back at Labour during Tony Blair's era and so on, from then on, and including the Conservatives, they have neglected neglected lower socioeconomic groups. They've neglected issues around integration. As I've said, they did not manage integration. They only put 50 million in to manage integration. 50 million is nothing when you think there's 152 local authorities in this country. To manage integration, the way integration, the way New immigrants were coming in, the way they were settling, they didn't expand schools, they didn't expand health services, so there was a lot of grievance. Grievance politics was definitely there, and in that sense I absolutely agree with Tobias, but I think we also have to appreciate that that's exactly what the right-wing populists built on. They built on that, that grievance politics, and then they created new lines of divisions that were not there before, so and maybe I mean maybe on a slightly more positive note, the, those lines of division we are seeing are, are, are falling along religious lines in new ways. Um, but it does seem to me that we don't have the same uh, level of this problem that some other countries are seeing, Hungary, for example, or, or the United States. I mean, we, we, none of your case studies and so forth. And I just, uh, I wonder why that is. Is it because we are simply a less religious country, uh, uh, that the, there is lower church attendance, although in your uh, evidence you were suggesting that church attendance sort of helped the other way. So I, uh, how do we explain that in the UK the religious fault lines are slightly less stark? So it's really interesting because the UK is probably the only country in the West where this is not happening. So it's like a very interesting negative case study. Uh, and it's because like neither, neither UKIP nor recently the BNP nor even the Leave campaign have tried to really use uh, religion uh, even to, to in the construction because there was a very big project to construct English identity and use English identity um, on the part of UKIP or the Leave campaign. But they, they have never thought about using Anglicanism, although you'd think Church of England might might be quite helpful with that in, in, in theory, like if you take that, that perspective. Uh, but it is really interesting that they haven't, as you said, like there are a couple of different approaches to say. One, one approach would say it's, it's just strategic because in the UK, secularization is one very far uh, progressed, but that is, for instance, also true in France, but it has progressed very softly and smoothly, uh, so there's no constituency of a politicized Christianity, really, to the same extent as there is in France, where you really have a, a strong, about like 20, 25% of the population are actually politicized Catholics, which can bring millions of people out on the, on the streets in the, in the demonstration against gay marriage. You even still have it to an extent in places like Germany, where you had this strong divide between Protestants and Catholics. So religious identity just played much more in the of course, in the U.S. with, with uh, uh, the religious right. Religion identity was much more politicized, whereas in the U.K., part of that, partly because of that, that uh, historical secularization, but also because of the institutional church, um, Anglicanism is just significantly less politically involved. Another approach that is quite interesting that, um, for instance, um, Timothy uh, Peace in, in Glasgow talked about is that um, actually the BNP has tried that about 20 years ago in the early 2000s, they tried to really use the, the cross of St. George and really say, like, we are, we are a, Christian, uh, a Christian country, we are the, the party for the Christians. And the Anglican Church has incredibly quickly gone out there and said, like, absolutely not, have been, has been very, very strong in, uh, in, in condemning that. Uh, and then very much because the Anglican, Anglican Church was 
so much out there immediately, uh, it might have been that they thought like, okay, if we try that again, that probably might not fly. Um, and it's also interesting to see uh, that the demographic of the Anglican Church is very different to, or like of religion in general in the UK is actually quite different to many countries in Europe um, because the, the Anglican Church is not only rather liberal and often left-leaning in its leadership, uh, but also um, quite increasingly middle class in its membership. Um, and if you look at uh, the demographics that um, many um, uh, right-wing populists aim at, it's not the middle, the, 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 the middle class, it's rather the, the left behind. So it's a very different socioeconomic class that is, tends to be more religious in the UK than in many other European countries. I mean, yes, I, I, I was thinking, I mean, the other thing about this country is it's very different in terms of context. The first thing we have to consider is that ethnic minorities in this country and Muslims in this country have been much more integrated than many of the Muslims in Europe. Many of the Muslims in Europe are much newer, whereas Muslims historically have been here for decades and decades. You know, we're talking third, fourth generation Muslims. Um, so in that sense, and, and I think with the Muslim population, about half of them are now born in this country. So that makes them much more integrated, which means that it's harder for far-right groups to be successful and 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 start creating animosity with that group. So I think that that's, that's one thing that we need to consider about why, why the fruitcakes and, and the closet racists haven't been as, as successful. The other side, the flip side of the argument, which is a bit more of a pernicious argument, um, is does it really matter that they haven't manifested in the same way where, the, where we've got um, far-right parties who are much more successful if it's already integrated into the mainstream. If you already have a home secretary, a prime minister, um, and even people from the Labour Party like Sarah Champion and others using the language of the far-right, um, then do you really need far-right groups to say actually extremism has become much more prevalent. So I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Right, we want to hear from you now, uh, and we want to hear from as many of you as possible, which means that I would ask you respectfully to keep uh, your contribution to a question uh, rather than a speech from the floor. Uh, so please begin with your name and any affiliation that you want to uh, own up to. Uh, and please wait for the microphone to get to you. And what we're going to do is we'll take uh, groups of three, uh, and then uh, Tobias and Zabeda can decide kind of you know which ones they uh, they want to respond to. So if we uh, begin with uh, the gentleman there in the glasses, and then we'll go to uh, um, uh, you a bit further back, the lady there, uh, and then you just in front. Yeah. Yes, it's for Tobias. Um, I noticed you put Dresden up which is in the old East Germany. And I remember seeing um, a map of religious affiliation in Berlin. It was stark, the uh, West Berlin, and the bit that was under communist, or was part of East Germany. Um, has there been any connection between the rise of, rise of Pegida and the parts of Germany that were under communist rule? Okay, great. And if we can just whiz back to... Uh, the lady there, and do please begin with your name and any affiliation you want to. Hello, um, my name is Yeji, and 
I work in law, nothing to do with this. Uh, my question is, um, from your studies and your observations, has there been any evidence to suggest maybe because of the characterization that, you know, you are far right, therefore you're racist, they're almost using religion as an excuse to legitimize the, some of the statements that they're making? Okay, and then the guy just in front in the LSE t-shirt. Robbie from the LSE. So this is to Mr. Kramer. A cogent argument in regards to populism and religious identity on the far right, but I'm just wondering how your dissertation figures into uh, the case of Russia with like the re-orthodoxification of Putin's regime, and then also in China where he's starting to use, where President Xi is starting to use more uh, Confucian symbols as well. Okay, so a question about... Uh Dresden, about religion as a sort of uh, a foil for racism, in a sense, and, uh, and a slightly more global picture with Russia and so forth. So, I don't know who wants to pick up what. Should I take the first sure. question then? Um, yeah, very, like the, the, the uh, East, East-West comparison in Germany is actually really, really interesting uh, because Pegida is doing so much better in the, in the East than the West comparatively. So they, in, the, in the East, in the West, they're usually about 10, 15%. In the East, they are often the strongest party um, with, I think, their record result uh, uh, being up to 40% in, in parts of Saxony, um, where it's really the biggest party uh, uh, there. And there are a couple of reasons why they do so particularly well there. Uh, one is certainly that this is the region in Germany that is um, both culturally and economically the most left behind. So that is the, the region where people are actually doing worse, worst, uh, and where their identity seems particularly threatened, where also reunification was often seen as a, almost as an insult to, to Eastern German uh, identity and the achievements that they also had. Um, interestingly, when it comes to, to, to the religious bit, because um, you can also see that uh, Eastern Germany is actually the least religious part probably of the entire world, maybe with the exception of North Korea. Um, because you have, you have rates of, of atheism from 60 to 70%. Uh, and it is interesting to see there that, and I, I, so my, my research, I mainly do elite interviews. So I talk to, um, to bishops, but to right-wing populists as well, like the, the politicians and to mainstream politicians. I also talk to people right there. And a lot of people I talk to are saying, yeah, yeah exactly that it is part of the problem because this is a generation that has... Um, basically no connection to any sort of religion at all since, since the Nazis, because the Nazis were like an atheist regime, um, and then the, the, the communists were an atheist regime, so there's no uh, continuation. And they perceive Islam, or any, any form of religion really, uh, as very much of a, of a threat, uh, because they're just not used to, um, to, 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 to religion. Uh, so that is one aspect that might help explain that why they are generally much more hostile to religion. They see Christianity really as a cultural thing. Uh, it's not, it's not religion for them. It's just a, a, a kind of identity thing. It's like nice church buildings. Um, but then you, you actually also have a, um, a second thing, and that is that they haven't gone through the same process of uh, working through the history uh, of, of the Nazi regime. So that in, in Western Germany, there's a very, very strong taboo against the, uh, against the far right, and especially so amongst Christians. So this taboo holds especially amongst, um, amongst Protestants and Catholics. This has historically not been the case in the East because they haven't gone through the same tabooization process. And I actually think one of the main reasons why um, Christians tend, or, or particular practicing Christians tend to vote less 
um, right wing populists not because they're in some way or other better, better people than anybody else, but they, they tend to be more attuned to social taboos. Uh, and in Eastern Germany, these social taboos just don't exist to the same extent, which is why the AFD is quite successful. But it is interesting that the AFD is not just an Eastern German um, project, that you can actually see it's the, the AFD is not just particularly strong amongst irreligious voters because they're in the East, but even in Western Germany, the AFD is double as strong amongst irreligious Western voters as amongst irreligious Eastern voters in the East. And you just want to pick up the Russia question? Yeah, the Russia question. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, this will be much, much shorter because I, I don't, uh, unfortunately, don't look at that in particular. But it is a really interesting dynamic. We see that throughout, actually, not just in Western Europe, uh, but throughout almost the entire world, a return of religion, but not necessarily religiosity. So you have that exactly in Russia. You have orthodoxy, uh, and like everybody in Russia now identifies as orthodox. I mean, I think 80% now identify as orthodox, uh, which is like a massive up since the end of the Cold War, but only 20% believe in God. Um, say that they believe in God, which is the same as under communism. So you do see that this is really about culture and cultural identity uh, much rather than about, um, about faith. But you can actually see that not just in Russia or the Western world or, or Hungary or Poland, uh, but you can even see it in places like, like India where you have um, Hindu nationalism that's much more about nationalism than about Hindu. Um, so that is a, an interesting dynamic. As I said, I don't really look too much into that, but there's a lot of work being done on that at the moment, but also still enough space for more PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then your question, which I apologize, Beda didn't quite hear. Sorry, I, I couldn't quite uh, hear what you were asking. But it was a question of whether, whether religion is being used as a, as a foil for racism. Is it? Oh, um, no, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, because as I mentioned, it's... You constantly hear that, what it, that, that they're not racist, one, because Muslims are not a racial group, which, of course, is disingenuous if you accept that Sikhs and um, Jewish people are um, ethnic and racial groups. Um, and, and the other, of course, is because everything they do, the, cult, the cultural pathologies that they use in relation to Muslims, the stereotypes that they use in relation to Muslims, and I'm not just talking about Tommy Robinson, you know, Tommy Robinson is that end of the spectrum, but actually we shouldn't ignore him. Um, it's exactly the same as the racism um, that, that's been, that we've seen before. I mean, one of the things that they've done that I think, I mean, in terms of who's to blame, I, I was blaming politicians, but the other groups we have to blame are, are the liberals in this country. Um, because one of the things they've done is they've taken racism which we used to be which we used to see as a result of social cultural and historical issues in relation to racism like we didn't we didn't see racism just as biological markers that was the 50s and 60s kind of racism that's where the eugenics group come from but what the far right have done or what the right-wing populists have done that's very successful is they've taken racism back to its narrow biological markers and, and that's how they've reframed Muslims and religion in terms of race, because they say we're not racist because we're not talking about the color of someone's skin. But of course, racism, as I mentioned, is a cultural concept. It's a social context. It has historical context when you think about colonialism and so on. Interesting. Right, uh, three more. We'll come over to this side. So yes, um, at the back there, yes, you. Uh, and then, uh, then 
the, the two gentlemen in front. Uh, yes. So the broader definition of racism is very useful, and it shows that there are these different things, supposedly different things, that are really the same thing, and that we shouldn't be limited by our vocabulary. But I wonder if we're still limiting ourselves by our vocabulary, because the last time I was in this room, is that just down there in the corner? Same kind of topic. Oh, this group is being vilified. This group is being portrayed as criminals. This group is being othered. Da 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 da. But it wasn't about racism. It was about transphobia. And we need to see that racism nicely encompasses, so that you can, so that you can say, yes, anti-Asian racism is the same as anti-black racism. Well, we actually need a broader word that covers. Because we see exactly the same phenomenon happening in homophobia and transphobia, the othering, the the whole list of techniques, okay, whole list, all same. And I don't know if you've ever heard of what was called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It's a, in linguistics, it says um, if our language can't say it, we can't think it. And there's a lot of truth in it. It's controversial among linguists, but forget that. The fact is. Because our language can't say all these things are the same thing with a label against all of them, we're nicely being divided and conquered, and we need to think more of the same thing. I'm sorry, I don't know if, how to word that as a question. So the question is, do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh, yep, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Okay, I'm very audible. I would flow. So my question is on the on Tobias uh, studies. So Tobias, I want to find out uh, to what extent do you look at the demographic groups in terms of the maybe age? How, how is age a factor in in this? Them and us and them. Thanks, uh, Steve Wright. Um, an observation from a politically detached agnostic. Um, in this country, we seem my my parents' generations that. Christian Church was a desperately oppressive presence in the country for centuries. And until the middle of the last century, it was interfering in people's private liberty on divorce and so forth. What rather concerns me is some Christians seem to be piggybacking on the political aspects of very conservative social aspects and political ambitions of some in the Muslim community. And those of us who are agnostic and relish our freedom Nevertheless, let me point out some of the Christians and some of the others that um, a lot of other groups reserve the right to be sensitive about hate speech. But even if you don't believe in heaven and hell, nevertheless, it's rather appalling for certain groups to feel free to call you a complete kafir, an unbeliever, may burn in hell, and the same with many of the radical Christian groups. So I think there needs to be a little bit of balance and nuance. In the so, question. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> okay. So, where did you want to? Um, I could answer it really simply and say yes, I agree to all of those things. Um, I, th we haven't talked very much about this, but of course, one of the other strategies that that right-wing populists have used is quite obviously the divide and rule strategy, um, and we we see it very clearly with, with, with Trump and what's happening where suddenly 
when he talks about Mexicans, he's not saying the same thing as when he talks about the Muslim ban. And the wall and the Muslim ban are actually two different things. They're not at all, of course, two different things. It's, it's, still, it's still racism against different groups. It's still prejudice against different groups. It's still discrimination against different groups. Sorry? Absolutely. And I think, but, but because this strategy of divide and rule, because this strategy of saying the white working class are not the same as the Muslim working class, even though actually they are exactly the same group, they have exactly the same issues, bar, you know, additional sort of um, discrimination issues, that they've managed to separate and pit groups against each other. And yes, absolutely, I think that's where... Um, they've been particularly strategic. But where, going back to liberals and, and my liberal conspiracy, as I like to call it, um, I think that's where it's also seeped into the liberal narrative as well, where in the liberal narrative, what you hear is, although they don't use exactly the same language all the time as right-wing populists, it's not to say that it hasn't hasn't seeped in there, and I gave you some examples of what we see in the media, but also, when you think at the moment, I don't know if you've been reading the papers, you know, when you think about anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, it's really interesting, because they're talking about anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, and you've got the Conservative Party pointing fingers about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, while ignoring all the issues about Islamophobia within their own party. And yet, when you look at the examples of Islamophobia in relation to anti-Semitism, they're very similar. It's the same kind of prejudice, the same kind of behavior, the same kind of bullying, the same, you know, it's, it's very, very similar. But what's really interesting is then you have mainstream um, media people who then still present it as a ranking of the racisms, where anti-Semitism is suddenly a bit more important and a bit more real than Islamophobia. Okay. So maybe very quickly building on that, because that's a really, really interesting dynamic. So we, we for the first, not, not entirely the first, but it's like a relatively new development that we actually see what academics now call secular, um, not secular, but like liberal intolerance, mm -hmm. um, that we actually see, I mean, like, obviously, I, I don't say that that's, that right-wing populists are, are right with that, but you have a lot of right-wing populist politicians who now start portraying themselves as the real defender of, uh, of Jews against Islamic um, uh, anti-Semitism. Anti you even have people like Gerd Wilders um, or, or Marine Le Pen in France who are saying, we are the real defenders of gay rights and transgender rights against intolerant Muslims. I mean, I'm not, I'm, it's up to you to think whether you think that's authentic. Uh, but it is quite interesting that, that I think you are right. Like, the main enemy uh, is Islam, and they're even ready to, to like, drop old enemies, at least for the show, um, to, fight against, to fight against Islam. That is, I think, a, an interesting development uh, that you have this, this tendency. This is, so in, and this then goes actually into the next question as well with the question of age. What, I think what we are seeing to an extent um, is a schism in the traditional right electorate. Because, and this is, I think, part of the problem why I can write this PhD, because basically nobody has looked at that. Because a lot of, especially social scientists, tend to be on the liberal side of things which is fair enough. Um, 
but they, they see as they look at the left and they, they dissect the left, and then there is the other, that's the right. And they're kind of all the same. That is like one, one block of the same people, and that includes conservative Christian, that includes uh, right-wing populists, that includes anti-Semites, etc., etc. But what we haven't realized over the last 10, 20 years is that this right uh, is basically breaking into two parts, with on the one hand, the traditional conservative right that is tends to be more elderly, um, tends to be uh, socially conservative, um, and ten, but in, in, in generally votes conservative parties, um, and that is classically right-wing, but that still often uh, is associated with the church, and actually to an extent also is, is uh, more um, attuned to these like social taboos that come from the church. They are not left-wing liberals in no ways, but they are like, like they are value conservatives or social conservatives. But what we are seeing is now an inc- the emergence of a new right, of a new secular right, and that new secular right is, is much less it- uh, attached to um, traditional social conservatism, they don't, they don't really care too much about um, gay rights. They, they don't have too much of a problem with gay marriage, for instance. They don't have too much of a problem with, um, with, with, with gender equality, etc. They think that is all part of the same thing, but they do have a problem uh, with Islam. Um, and this, but interestingly, if you look at that demographic, that's actually much younger much more feminine than the traditional right used to be. So we see that in many European countries, that for instance, the, the, the Front National about, around Le Pen is becoming ever younger and ever more feminine um, as this new right is basically taking over from it and they are much more ready to vote right-wing populist. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I was thinking like a lot of my arguments these days, whether on Twitter or on TV or radio, is with the liberals. I mean, I, I do have, I do, I mean, the way the news media works is they tend to pit us against the other extreme and you know that can be quite interesting and, and stressful usually sometimes not usually but sometimes fun um, but actually it's very difficult when you're pitted against someone who's supposed to be liberal um, and I mean I remember a while ago having quite a Twitter argument with David Aranovich from the Times who's very liberal on many views, but when it comes to Islamophobia, it goes out the window. But in a way, it reflects the country quite well, because survey after survey has shown that actually in the last 20, 25 years, as a country, we've become very liberal with many of our views. We're very liberal towards homosexuality, uh, we're very liberal towards black groups, we're very liberal towards, you know, different kinds of diversity. And of course, recently, we've even become more liberal towards immigrants. You've seen that since Brexit, irony of ironies. But um, when it comes to Muslims, as Tobias said, that anti-Muslim prejudice, what we're we're defining and Runnymede as anti-Muslim racism, we're trying to get the Conservative Party, the government, to adopt that definition, um, is completely ignored. But there's simple questions like, you know, how would you feel about your child marrying the following groups? And there's a really interesting survey which shows how, you know, how would you feel about them marrying the following groups? Muslims, black people, gypsy Roma travellers. Muslims is sky high. And they don't, they don't connect the dots. You know, they'll still call themselves liberal people with liberal values. And I think that's really where we need to worry because that's how much it has seeped into the mainstream 
the mainstream sort of narrative and the mainstream understanding and mainstream beliefs. The dinner party test. The, yes. Yeah. Saeed Abbasi's dinner table test. Okay. Um, uh, let's go right over there uh, to uh, Green Sweater with your hand up. Yep. Uh, and then we'll come to, the, yes, this gentleman here at the front, and then uh, I'll come over to you so that we've done a spread of the room. Um, hi, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about the use of um, the idea of cultural loss in your, when talking about the discourse used by right-wing populists. And um, I guess my question would be, how do you see that could be countered best? Because this is particularly high on the political agenda in Western societies that already face uh, demographic decline. Great. And uh, second row here. Hello. Um, my name's Shaheen Yakub. Um, I want to suggest that uh, we've been talking about the far right as a Christian root, or uh, the far right as having co-opted Christian value or icons, let's say. So I want, to, I want to suggest that there's another far right, and that's the Islamic version of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they too have co-opted uh, religious icons in an equally vacuous way. Um, and what I want to ask is, to what extent are we seeing essentially the rivalry between these two far-right groups over the um, underlying issues of grievance politics. So we have communities that essentially are facing the same economic and social issues, and we're discovering that they do not see a common bond. And the question in my mind is, what's dividing them? And is it really the rivalry of these two far-right groups? Right. I mean, yep. it I isn't. It's, I got that. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. And here. Um, my question to the panel is why they think that often uh, on the left, particularly the populist left, there isn't as much support for Muslims or ex-Muslims who criticize Islam. I'm particularly thinking along the lines of someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, someone like uh, Majid Nawaz, or even in my own friendship group, like I've seen... Muslims being talked, uh, like lectured at by people who are, you know, normally white, um, saying that, oh no, what you're saying, you know, I, I see you're criticizing Islam, but actually it's the right wing media, and this is actually someone who comes from Islam themselves. And I'm just interested in the, what the panel thinks, why that might be the case. Great, okay, so we had cultural loss uh, to begin with, uh, a point about the Islamist right, as it were, and uh, 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 issue raised about ex-Muslims on the left. Who wants to take any of those? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, so, so, sorry, could you, could you ask again the cultural loss question? What was... Or was that for Tobias? Okay, I, I got the impression that was for Tobias, so I can skip that yeah. question. How it's used in the right-wing populism discourse, and how to... I guess my question was how do you think that could be 
best kind of counter. Yeah. Oh, right, the cultural loss argument. Well, this is it. As I was saying, it's, it's a great one. If you can't measure it, you can always talk about your feelings and common sense. And, you know, it's a really successful strategy because, as I've said, everybody has a grievance. Everybody feels a little bit of a loss, you know. We, we all complain about that neighbour that's moved down the street and you feel a bit discombobulated kind of thing. So I think we have a lot of resonance, and that's where it's very clever. But... Um, I think, how do you counter that? I think we have to go back and just talk about what really is the issue. I mean, this is behind the anti-immigrant sentiment, isn't it? Because it's really interesting with the anti-immigrant sentiment that built up to Brexit, that actually, when you looked at the immigration facts, when you looked at the immigration statistics, reality didn't match perceptions. You know, the strongest anti-immigrant sentiments were in areas with the lowest number of immigrants. The, strong, the lowest anti-immigrant sentiments were in the areas with the highest number of immigrants. So this whole notion that people were overwhelmed with immigrants in their towns didn't quite match up with the reality of what was happening. The other thing, of course, is, is things like, um, you know, in this country, to a great extent, back in 1978... 1978, when we first started looking at surveys, of, of asking surveys, uh, looking at surveys of um, anti-immigration, net migration in this country was close to zero, and yet three quarters of this country didn't want new immigrants coming in. So you see that there is this real issue there. But I think to a great extent, we need to go back. We need to start breaking the myths. What's difficult is um, this notion of emotional innumeracy. And I don't know if you've come across that. But it's this notion that no matter how many facts and figures you say to people, they don't care because they go back to what they feel. They go back to their values. And so... I guess we're trying to, I don't have that magic bullet answer, but we're trying to circumnavigate that. Um, to take this question, the ex-Muslim question. Um, was, remind me, what was that question about? Um, oh, I remember, Majid Navi. Yeah, Majid Nawaz, right. I remember that question. Yes, well, it's, it's yet another thing that the, <laughs> that the right-wing populists have, have um, done. Well, there's a couple of things. One is... Um, an issue that's a strategy that they're increasingly using is um, to weaponize ethnic minorities against ethnic minorities, weaponize Muslims against Muslims. And I'm not saying that those people like Majid Nawaz don't have agency. They completely have agency. He's an ex-extremist, you know, and now he's gone the other extreme, which is quite interesting, says a lot about extremists. Um, but I, I mean, even recently, even recently on Twitter, he was talking about, he, even though he was attacked recently by someone um, who was attacking him for his ethnic and faith or perceived faith beliefs, um, he still presents the same argument as the far right, which is when he criticizes Muslims, and he is a prolific critique of, uh, uh, prolific um, uh, not pretty, but a, uh, he's a prolific criticizer of, of Muslims. He uses the same argument. He says, I am criticizing Muslims for their beliefs 
and not for who they are. But actually, there's a really fine line. There's a really fine line between saying that I'm criticizing someone for their beliefs versus their everyday experience as Muslims. And the reason we know that is because we now have the data across the board. When you look at every public sector, Muslims are the most discriminated group. And actually, it gets even more interesting than that, because black Muslims, black Muslim men, are the most discriminated group. Whether you look in employment, whether you look in education, whether you look in housing, they are the most discriminated group. So it is a very fine line, and it's quite a disingenuous argument, which is why I think they don't get that much support. Tomás, you've got one minute, so um, I, I tried if you want to respond to the question in the middle. I, I go for, very, very briefly on the cultural loss one as well. I think that's a really, really interesting one. And I think the core problem is really the erosion of traditional identities and traditional group identities, and I think that's a real problem. That's actually the core of the problem. I think the, the Islamophobia is only uh, a result of that because if you have certain insecurity about your own identity, you're more scared of the other, especially if yeah. that is channeled through other people and through the media. Uh, but what I think is really the core problem is that these, these identities have dissolved. And um, I mean, since Hannah Arendt, we know that an atomized uh, individualistic society is the most prone to take up the only group identity that is then left, which is usually a form of exclusivist nationalism because that's the only thing that still unites you. So actually, it would rather be thinking, we should, should be thinking about what other more inclusive group identities can we have? And I mean, there are different things, like, like group, like there, are, there are regional identities, there are um, professional identities, etc. maybe even interfaith things, etc. But I think that's the core thing we have to think about. And I'll be very, very brief as well on the, on the question of the Islamic far-right. Um, and that is a really interesting dynamic. So I just had a conversation this morning with, um, with Atul Fatita. He is there, an, an, an imam here, and he was telling me something that I've heard a lot from Muslim communities, that the, 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 far right, the Muslim far right, the people who are most against Western civilization or Western values, or even the people who, who radicalize and become terrorists, these are not the people who, who are present and known in, church, in, 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 in mosque. These are very often, they're radicalized first. So, so if you look at the profiles of terrorists, they're actually not pious at all. They usually like take drugs, they drink, drink alcohol, they have like a lot of relationships, they're pretty, pretty, uh, pretty criminals. criminals. They have like all, probably also an identity crisis, but they, they decide first to radicalize and, and become uh, violent, and then they become Muslim mm. to take that on top. But they are not, we always have a narrative of they're radicalized in a, in a mosque. That's actually not the case. There are interesting studies by, for instance, Olivier Roy, that, that this is um, really, they are, they are terrorists first and then Muslims really only second. That is actually an interesting parallel to the right-wing populists we have. Our far-right extremists are really far-right first and then only uh, Christian second in a cultural sense because they, 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 they see, look for something to, to rationalize what they are doing. But these are not the people who go to church first. Uh, I mean, one really interesting example at the end of that is, for instance, Matteo Salvini, uh, who is now in, in Italy the, the, the uh, Minister of Domestic Affairs, of, um, of Internal Affairs, and he is um, now saying he's the big savior of Christian Italy. He's more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, the Pope does not like him. Um, <laughs> but he says that he's running around with, like, a, a I Love Jesus T-shirt, etc., etc., and, like, is swearing to the gospel that he will defend Catholic Italy. Um, a couple of years ago, this man still openly identified as pagan. 
and said that um, Christianity is the religion of the weak. Uh, that, is, that is, we have to go back to the virile and strong paganist tradition. Um, but he was like far-right anti-Muslim first, and now picks up Catholicism. Um, and, and says he's more Catholic than the Pope. And I think that is a, a, an interesting dynamic that is almost parallel to the dynamics in, uh, in Islam. Mm. I mean, we saw it a bit with Shemit. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're, running yeah. We're running over. Sorry. 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 Um, Anne Applebaum, uh, as I said, is sadly not able to be here, but we have stacks of her books outside, so you can pick up a copy and see what she, what she would have said. Um, there is also a stack of my book, Loving Your Neighbor in Native <laughs> Religious Conflict, so you definitely don't want to go home without a copy of that. <laughs> Check out the wonderful work that, uh, that Ronnie Mead is doing in their reports, and I think we're all looking forward to the book that comes out of Tobias's PhD, uh, which we hope to pre-order soon. <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming and for contributing in the way that you have, and I just finally ask you to join me in thanking our two speakers for facilitating this. <laughs>